Hi everyone, this is Maria here. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to share something with you all. It's summer here right now and Transform Talks is going to be taking a much needed break. Well, don't get too excited as I'm not going anywhere. But throughout the month of August, I'm going to be working diligently with my team to create the next season of Transform Talks. During this month, our LinkedIn page, which is called at Transform Talks, will continue to post exclusive content. So I'd encourage you all to give it a follow to keep up to date with the latest developments. I'm also going to be on social media, so continue to follow me. Rest assured that we're going to be back in September with yet more weekly episodes featuring some exciting and interesting content around transformation. Finally, I'd also like to take this opportunity to remind you to prioritize yourself, your family, and your mental health. Take a break. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Yeah, I mean, so honestly, supply chain is the world, good and bad, right? We exist because of it. And then um, what I would say is that as we in procurement in particular, we decide where we will, you know, buy something from. And so we actually have tremendous power. We may not realize it always, but when procurement decided to go all into China, we brought 300 million people out of poverty and created this incredibly powerful economic super nation. So I think that's the power of supply chain. That's the power of procurement. We have the power to shape the world. You're listening to Transform Talks, a podcast about global supply chain transformation. I'm Maria Villablanca, co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, a fast-growing network of over 130,000 supply chain and manufacturing executives worldwide. Now on this show, I'm going to be interviewing and having conversations with some of the biggest names in supply chain and business, where we're going to be discussing topics around digitization, transformation, leadership, technology, business models, diversity, sustainability, and much, much more. Welcome back to Transform Talks. This week, my guest is Bindia Vakil. Bindia is the CEO and co-founder of Resilink. It was founded in 2010, and it's a leading cloud provider for supply chain and risk management that currently works with over 450,000 suppliers in 200 countries. Now, prior to launching Resilink, Bindia worked for the likes of Cisco, Flextronics, and MIT. As a supply chain expert, Bindia has appeared on nationally syndicated TV, radio, and print media. And in 2013, she was named top female supply chain executive by supply and demand chain executive. I'm really happy that we've been able to get Bindia on the show. Not only is it because she's a supply chain expert and therefore able to give us her thoughts on the latest developments in the industry, but she's also an entrepreneur. So she's going to be able to give us her unique perspective on what it's like operating a business in this space. During this episode, Bindia and I discuss what it's like running a supply chain business, her views on the state of global risk, and her thoughts on the many issues still facing the industry and the world today. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Bindia. Thank you for being here on Transform Talks. Thank you for having me, Maria. It's great to be here. So you know what? I interview a lot of people. I speak to them, whether it's through this podcast, through the events I run, through, I mean, I'm constantly speaking to people, which I love. I love this part of my job. But one of the things that's interesting is 90%, give or take, of the people that I talk to, I ask them, how did you get into supply chain? And they all say, well, I kind of fell into it or et cetera. What was interesting about getting you here is I understand that you you studied supply chain. So 
why? How on earth did you get into supply chain? What, what attracted you to supply chain? Um, yeah, I did. But it was um, after I actually worked in supply chain for a few years, I actually started my career in uh, financial services in, in uh, Prudential ICICI in India. Then I came here. Um, and when I landed in the Bay Area um, and went looking for uh, financial services roles, they said, well, you know, you have to be at the office at 6 a.m. And so for me, that was good enough to uh, good enough reason for a career change. Um, so as I started looking for uh, my next role and supply chain looked interesting, you know, at that time, it was still an up and coming field that there weren't like professional uh, degrees very common. This was I'm talking 2000. So it's a long time ago. Started working in supply chain in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area at a high-tech company called Solectron, which is now Flextronics. It's an electronics manufacturing company. And so after I did four or five years there, I actually got pretty excited about the, you know, supply chain is there's nuances, you know, and finance is black or white a lot. But in supply chain, it's all optimization. You There's no complete black or white, right, right wrong answer. Um, it's a lot of balancing that we do. And so I really felt like this was a very unique um, field that I needed more learning to do here. So went to MIT. They had a program called MLog. Now it's called the Master's in Supply Chain Program. And I uh, did that degree to just brush up on my understanding. And that's what I've been doing. You know, one of the things I, I also say is that I don't think we do enough to attract people to this industry or even to talk about how cool the supply chain is, right? And how, how important it is in, in the world. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, just think about our life. Our life is powered by the supply chain. Um, we look at anything, just anything your eyes fall on right now, there was a supply chain behind it, no matter how big or small. And I think the pandemic showed us more starkly than ever before that every single thing, every activity that we do is has been and always will be about resources supply chain getting products to people on time and that is driving everything we do you know i i say the same thing when i um onboard a new employee to talk about supply chain i say look around you everything that you can see feel touch that is you know that you've purchased in some way the car you're driving the phone you're you've got the jeans you're wearing that is supply chain. Supply chain has powered that. So I, I hear you. I love it. I think it's brilliant. I think there's also a huge opportunity, isn't there? Because the supply chain touches a great number of transactions worldwide, uh, has a huge footprint, carbon footprint. It touches a number of economies. So there's, I mean, there's bad things there, of course, but equally there's good things, right? There's the opportunity to, to build a better world. Right. So I think supply chain is one of those fields that is uh, has an opportunity to, to change the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, so honestly, supply chain is the world good and bad. Right. We exist because of it. And then um, what I would say is that as we in procurement in particular, we decide where we will, you know, buy something from. And so we actually have tremendous power. We may not realize it always, but when procurement decided to go all into China, we brought 300 million people out of poverty and created this incredibly powerful economic super nation. So I think that's 
the power of supply chain. That's the power of procurement. We have the power to shape the world. We have the power to shape countries and ge geographies and improve people's lives. Um, not only the people who use the products that supply chain delivers to them, but the people who are involved in the supply chain create economic power and benefit. Um, but as you said, Maria, supply chain has a dark side, you know, and in the process of going around the world, building products, moving them around, we do see that there are some bad behaviors. We are affecting the environment with all of this economic activity. Um, we are uh, enslaving sometimes uh, or creating unsafe or unfair labor conditions. There are problems about child labor, particularly in countries that are economically back uh, behind and disadvantaged. So there are things that we who have the ability to do this in procurement can influence and shape so that when we go to these countries to do the good things, we can bring better things and good practices alongside. So there's a lot to talk about there. But yeah, every day we are making a difference. And so I want to move us now to talk about the fact that not only did you decide to actively pursue a career in supply chain, but you also then decided to go a little step further and launch your own company. So I, I really don't get to speak very often to entrepreneurial people uh, and business people with regards to the aspects of operating in this space. Maybe you could talk me through a little bit uh, what it's like running a business. Uh, in this space, and maybe maybe some of the particular nuances actually that differentiated from other sectors, you think? Yeah, so there's so much to unpack that, but I'll just quickly because, um, as you said, you know, it is a rather unusual career path. So I will talk about how I came to start Resilink. So as I said, you know, I was working in high tech uh, sourcing and procurement roles, always feeling a little bit behind the curve, like we were very reactive during these times when disruptions happened, we were always caught off guard after suppliers decommit a PO or something, we would be like, oh, really, that happened? There was an earthquake here or there was a hurricane there and you had a factory there? So it wasn't until when um, I went to MIT, Yossi Shafi had um, just come out with his book, um, The Resilient Enterprise, which was really the first big major work on supply chain risk and resilience. And we got the full blast of all of Yossi's research there. And then after I left Cisco, uh, after I left MIT, came to Cisco. Cisco was just starting a team for supply chain risk management. Hurricane Katrina had happened. The big Indonesia tsunami happened in 05. And I was joining this team, um, really excited to say, hey, you know, we're going to figure out finally how to protect supply chain from risks. Now, the biggest question mark there was, you know, how do we not know when these massive events happen? We didn't know where that we had factories in those regions. So how can we not know that about such a critical supplier? So that was the big question mark. And if we don't know this about this supplier, who else do we not know has factories in these risky regions of the world? So that was a hypothesis. I started working on it with others, obviously, on the team, and we started mapping the supply chain. We had 44,000 parts, 1,500 suppliers to go do this with, and it took a long time. It took us about three, three and a half years. But I saw this data coming together in a central place for the first time. We could triangulate and say, how many factories do we have in Taiwan? How many of our direct suppliers all use TSMC or USP? 
So for me, and then when something happened and we were putting an early warning system in place, so when something would happen, we'd be able to say, oh, we have five factories and 10 parts that come from here. And so now before we run out of inventory, before suppliers tell us they're decommitting, we were ahead of it. And so I saw us transform from very reactive to actually being able to anticipate months ahead of time what was going to happen, which is so powerful because when you can, when you know something's coming at you, you have 10 things that you can do versus once a supplier decommits within a lead time window, there's only one thing you can do, which is to beg for parts and get whatever you can get. So I, the problem was the data. It took us three and a half years, couple of million to collect the data. And so my innovation was, well, if I could create an industry standard platform to create um, like a LinkedIn for supply chain. So if I'm a supplier, I can just come on Reslink, put my data in, do it once and allow many companies access to it. Then it would be less if, uh, work for the supplier. It would be faster to get to this data in weeks and months for customers. And the cost of all that would be shared across the entire ecosystem. So today, 13 years later, we have over 500,000 direct suppliers. We track over a million sites worldwide across 200 countries. We track 4 million parts around the world that are built in these factories. And we have an early warning system using a lot of AI that alerts our customers within hours of anything happening. It could be a factory fire, it could be M&A, it could be regulatory changes, it could be um, fines, labor strikes, lawsuits against suppliers in any part of the world. We're monitoring in a hundred languages. So pretty much nothing escapes us. So this has now been 13 year journey now, ask your question about what was it like to start a company in supply chain and it was very difficult because when I first started, this was 2010, the Japan tsunami hadn't happened. Thailand floods hadn't happened. Those were watershed moments for supply chain risk and resilience. Um, and they changed the mindset. But when I started wrestling, people didn't understand the value of risk. So our first 10 years were incredibly difficult. Fundraising was hard because, you know, the scars of the dot-com crash when venture capital lost a lot of money on supply chain, they were still fresh in the VC's minds. And um, so, yeah, there were challenges we had to overcome, uh, staying, you know, true to our value prop, believing in the mission and, you know, plugging away every day, one day at a time, just making a difference. And you know what I, I can imagine, because we as human beings have short-term memories, don't we? So. Uh, we sort of don't learn from the last couple of issues of risk and then assume life goes back to normal and risk and resilience becomes a conversation for another part of the business. So surely the last couple of years and all the things that are having an impact on the world right now, which I call the cocktail of crisis, right? All of these macro forces and mega trends coupled with the pace of technological change, the fact that there's uh, um, you know, consumer behaviors are changing, uh, sentiments are changing towards climate change and towards modern day slavery, for instance, the risks are enormous for most organizations. And we're still trapped in a way that we can't even, most companies can't gain visibility on an end to end basis for the multiple tiers in their suppliers. So here's the killer question. Maybe it's the billion dollar question. What's the biggest risk right now? 
there are so many that are, it's very hard to say what is the one big risk. The one big risk is actually us that we won't do anything, that we won't learn anything, that we won't adopt anything. That is the biggest risk, I would say, because there are solutions out there. There are ways in which companies survived and thrived during the pandemic, despite all of their competitors who were leveraging the same sets of suppliers in the same regions. Some companies overperformed their competition. They were able to keep deliveries to customers. They did not put customers on allocation. How did they do it? There is a formula here, but we are not adopting it many times. It's the same story as Zoom, Maria. Think about it, right? Zoom, Teams, WebEx, these technologies have been around forever, but we still flew all over the world. We still went into the office. We still were spending our time doing a lot of face-to-face -face interaction, not adopting the technologies in a holistic fashion like we have post-pandemic. The pandemic forced us to make this massive technology adoption, which has made a permanent change in how we live, work, play, and learn, right? Using these technologies. So it's the same thing that the, the pandemic made all of us eyes wide open. We do not have this data. We need this data. But what I still see sometimes is companies try to say, well, but the cost is too high or my data is just not clean or there are like these, you know, basket of concerns that keep getting in the way of us actually doing something. And I would say to you, do something, don't do nothing. Because the reality is that the supply chain disruptions are not slowing down. We are seeing them come at us from so many directions. I mean, who would have thought there would be a Suez Canal lock, um, ship stuck? That could have been a world crisis. I mean, could have been a massive crisis. Russia, Ukraine, who would have thought that, right? I mean, the climate, look at what is happening. Half the world is in drought. The other half is underwater. Crop production is affected. Now India has a massive tomato crisis. I mean, it's just one thing after another. So we are not in a world where humans, as we have operated our supply chains historically, where you throw bodies at the problem. You do everything over email and Excel. Those days are gone. Companies are leveraging AI, keeping track of the world and developments in real time, using these technologies and operating far faster than you are. You're, when you have people doing work, our brains are not connected. So all of the work we sit, uh, that we know about in our mind is in silo. So you have to combine the knowledge, put and embrace technologies like AI, cloud, uh, you know, solutions that are connected ecosystems, if you will, that connect various data sets into a single place so that you can derive more insight out of that. That's the way to accelerate decision making in real time without bringing people together in meetings and sitting there collect, exchanging information to come to a decision. That is too slow in this world. You know, you are speaking to the choir here, preaching to the choir. I wrote a newsletter called The Complacency Trap, and I feel that the biggest threat for risk and resilience right now is us, is our sort of the, the human nature to go back to what feels comfortable, to go back to being complacent and becoming a cost-driven supply chain and putting risk and resilience as an operational exercise as opposed to 
uh, you know, to executing on risk and neutral things from a cost perspective and not actually from a strategic perspective. I also feel that supply chain leaders got a seat at the table because of COVID. They were able to drive strategic changes within their organizations. And I don't want supply chain leaders or operational leaders to lose that seat when we go back to whatever semblance of normality people think that we're, we're in. And so we, have, we don't want to lose that seat. So we need to definitely be thinking about risk and resilience. Equally, I think that there, you know, the issues are so many, like let's take semiconductors, for instance, you know, how is it that we're in a situation right now where there's only like one or two companies in the world that can, you know, that deal with semiconductors for the rest of the, the world. And, you know, geopolitically, it's a huge problem, right? If it, that we could be facing. Can you talk us through a little bit about the whole semiconductor thing? Yeah, so there's, you know, it, it foundationally, and, I, and actually you said it very well, that procurement for years had been looked at as in a very tactical way. Go save some money, cut some inventory, and stay out of the way. That was how we had been sidelined, right? Whereas procurement, as I said in my initial comments, procurement is incredibly, incredibly powerful. We shape worlds with the work we do. We are the ones who need to have a seat at the table, helping our CEOs decide where we're going next and why and how you know we're gonna make it happen. So we have to make sure we remain in the business of supply assurance and don't somehow get ourselves back in the position of go get me some cost savings and stay out of my way. We have to think that way because when we think that way, when we say we are in the business of supply assurance, and, and here's why we should be in the continue to be in the business of supply assurance is the pandemic taught us that when even one of the parts is not there, the entire product revenue dies, right? Companies use the word supply chain disruptions in earnings announcements 40 times in some cases in the last years. So I think we have seen that procurement has a very critical role to play in ensuring that companies are continuing to get revenue in the door. <laughs> so this is a strategic function. Yeah, this is very strategic. And so now when you think about procurement going forward as a compliance uh, requirements mount, ESG requirements mount, risks are mounting, you know, you cannot say that we're just going to keep saving money when risks are coming at us from so many different directions that are going to shape how and where companies. Oh, and the supply chain network itself is in motion. Companies are looking at how will we build different um, resilient sites and, you know, flows. And so procurement is very much in those conversations, needs to shape those conversations and come at it with data. I think having a seat at the table is great. You have to keep earning it every day. And the way you earn it every day is come at this conversation with a lot of intelligence, data, and, and um, analytics to back up your positions. And that's where technology can help you tremendously. I agree. I agree, Bindia. I want to talk to you now about sort of regulatory issues. We know that there are a number of types of regulations that are coming in, especially here in Europe with regards to ESG reporting, financial reporting. You pick the acronym. We've got CSRD, we've got CFD, you know, CFDD, ISSR, S1 and S2, et cetera, et cetera. 
what do you think that the impact of all of these new regulations is going to have? What what's it going to be on supply chain? Do you think that this is going to cause reactions elsewhere? Absolutely. And, and here's why. So up until now, ESG, sustainability, um, they, these initiatives, people were doing them voluntarily, right? There weren't, the, there weren't financial real consequences. Um, that has changed. There's enforcement now. So remember conflict minerals? We didn't really see a whole lot of enforcement coming out of that. Um, but over the last, um, uh, just in the U.S., right? I know you talked a lot about the European regulations, but in the U.S., under the UFLPA, the government has seized $800 million worth of cargo. So guess what? This is now hurting. This is hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cargo getting seized and your customers are were waiting for that. So you're now on the hook to prove that you weren't actually benefiting from UFLPA uh, bonded labor. So the onus of responsibility has shifted. The nature of enforcement has shifted um, in the obviously German Due Diligence Act and, and all of the uh, European regulations. The, own, the responsibility for companies to shape their supply chain is on the company to know like plausible deniability is not allowed in this case, right? You can't say, oh, I didn't know I had bonded labor. No, you are required to show you what steps you are taking. And so the, the onus of responsibility is much higher. Now, the other thing that is very interesting that is happening is the community action. So um, one of the things that is happening here in the U.S. is the case of Sterigenics, which was a medical device sterilization company um, using ethylene oxide. And the local community in Illinois started to see uh, incidents of um, cancer because of ethylene oxide being a very poisonous gas. It's actually one of the highly permeable gases, which is why it is so effective at sterilizing medical devices. It permeates all the membranes and materials very, very thoroughly. But of course, there are chemical leaks. And when the environment, when you don't know what you're breathing, there's, uh, there's that issue. So what happened with that is more and more of these types of chemical spills, leaks, and other things are causing communities to start filing lawsuits. The local authorities are coming in and shutting those factories down, making them pay um, damages uh, to the compensation to the people. And the insurance companies are now starting to say, we're not going to insure some of these types of materials. So in the case of PFAS, which are forever chemicals, it was actually the insurance companies refusing to provide insurance to the companies that caused some of the companies to actually exit the PFAS, announce an end of life um, in the PFAS material space, which is a huge disruption now because PFAS are used in everything. Everything has PFAS. <laughs> I, I, think, I think what you said, which is that you can't hide behind plausible deniability anymore is probably one of the most important statements because of enforceability, because of consumer behavior, shareholder behavior, et cetera. You just cannot hide behind plausible deniability. I want to ask you about the future because I know that you're partnering with other companies. You announced, I think it was, that uh, uh, a partnership with Vista Equity Partners. Tell me about what's ahead for, for you guys. 
Yeah, wrestling is growing in hyper growth mode. We are finally found finding our, you know, um, the value proposition wrestling has, which is that we are keeping supply chains functioning. Our goal is to keep global supply chains resilient, sustainable, fair, and secure using all of our technology, our data, our expertise. That has finally found recognition across the market. So the future looks incredibly bright. We're super excited about our mission here because we really feel every day when we wake up, we're gonna make we're making a difference just by doing our job. So it's very powerful in that way. The partnership with Vista helps us grow faster, uh, also leverage new technologies. You know, there's so much exciting development on the AI side. Um, and, and we leverage AI for the last 10 years. We've been using natural language processing, machine learning, neural network type of artificial intelligence technologies to predict the future. That's the business we are in because the more accurately we can tell our customers how their supply chains are going to be disrupted, the better positioned they are to take protective measures. And so we are super excited about where we can go um, to further, uh, uh, you know, ex accelerate that value and ROI to our customers with this partnership with Vista. So I want to ask you a question because we reached the end of the show, and this is a question that I ask everybody that's on here, which is about a book. If you can recommend a book that uh, maybe has had a big impact in your life, whether it's personal or professional, uh, what would it be and why? You know, there's a really good book. Um, and actually, it's a series of books um, called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And it it is he's written about the five love languages for couples, for children, teenagers, as well as the languages of appreciation in the workplace. And I love that because for the first time, I realized that when you want to show love and appreciation for someone you have to speak it in the language they feel. So often we will uh, show appreciation at work to someone by let's all go out to a drinks or something when the person across us might actually want to, you to help them in doing the work that they're doing. Just, just help me. I'm really busy. I don't want to go out and hang out, but that would show me appreciation. So we often miss the mark, even though we are doing it the way we think is the right thing, they might not see it. And so this whole idea of showing appreciation or love to the day-to-day -day people that we are in these amazing relationships with who power our life and our soul, replenish our soul, um, this book is actually such a beautiful way to show how to make these relationships successful in these small moments. So I think that is that has been a huge, um, you know, transformational book for me. And then professionally, you know, uh, there's a book called um, uh, The Healing Organization by Raj Sodia, and it just talks about uh, how organizations can be better stakeholders in the community and improve the communities that they are operating in. Um, and I think one of, and I don't know if this line was in the book or not, but you know how we as, as CEOs always say that um, the, the role of business is to uh, generate um, profit for shareholders, um, but uh, this this whole idea that the conscious leadership uh, capitalism is that the role of business is to find profitable solutions to the world's problems. Such a transfer because the the 
shareholder gain will follow if you're finding profitable solutions to the world problems. It is such a powerful but transformational statement right, right there. Absolutely. Bindia, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us here on, uh, on the podcast and hopefully we'll see you soon. Thank you very much, Maria. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I do hope you gained some valuable insight from this week's episode. To stay up to date with the latest developments, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn at Transform Talks. Also, if you don't already follow me on LinkedIn, please do so now. I'm always keen to connect with supply chain and business leaders from around the world. You can find me by searching for Maria P. Villablanca. And if you're lucky, I may let you know what the P in my name stands for. In the meantime, wishing you a great week ahead. And as always, for those of you listening, I'll catch you at the next one.